0: This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Sorry about that, I'm apologizing on his behalf for being late. Okay, they're recording me. So there we have it. So in the dark ages, there was a time to come out of confusion. In the days just before Jesus comes, there will be a call to come out of confusion into the light of God's truth. So there have been aspects. The third angel's message. Very quickly, the third angel's message ends with those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. In every Christian generation, there have always been those who have kept the commandments of God and had the faith of Jesus. Old Testament and New Testament. So there are aspects of all three angels that have always been relevant for God's people in every generation. Now having said that, put that to one side, I've done that job, let's move on, okay? So, the three main aims of this seminar is to explore the three angels' message in relation to the everlasting gospel. We're just going to explore the three angels and connect it to the everlasting gospel in the first angel. Secondly, to show how each message has been integral to the gospel in every age. I've done a bit of that right now. I don't want to so much focus on that. I finished that, right? And then to see the love of God shining through in each message. It is a powerful testimony to the love of God in the three angels' message. It speaks of God's love. The everlasting gospel has to speak of God's love. So even the judgment has to speak of God's love. Fearing God has to speak of God's love. Worshipping God, it's about God's love. Yeah? It's all about the love of God. And I'm going to try and show you this shining through because there are so many Adventist teenagers Scared of the judgment. They are terrified of the judgment. They don't understand it. They're just scared of it. They think that at some point, after 1844, and I'm presuming you know, right? After 1844, their name is going to come up in heaven and God is going to make a decision right there at that time. And if they're not right, they're lost no matter what they do. Many Adventist kids think think that way. And they're scared of it. And they have this picture of God that is some kind of big ogre in the sky. Some kind of judge. And he's going to come bring the hammer down. Crack. You're guilty. You're not guilty. You're saved. You're lost. And they have this, this false image of God. So we're going to explore this to try and put that idea to bed. Very quickly, a brief outline of the book of Revelation. A quick outline of the book of Revelation. Please take your pens. Take notes. And if you want to, you can get the presentation from me after if you have your memory stick. If you've got your zip drive or memory stick, you can get the presentation. Very quickly, before chapter 14, we have, seven, we have three major sevens. We have the seven churches, all right? We have the seven seals and the seven trumpets. Three major sevens before chapter 14, okay? Oh, you know what? this hasn't clicked on to presenter view excuse me for a moment this isn't recognizing presenter view why is this not happening I need, who's technical here please eh? come and do it for me it normally just automatically clicks into presenter mode thank you don't know how that deactivated itself I have my notes on the presenter view Technology is nice when it works, eh? <laughs> we know what? We don't really need technology because here I have my notes, okay? But it's nice when it works. So praise the Lord. So there we are. Now, let's go back. I think we've... So then after chapter 14, let's continue. Sorry about that. After chapter 14, we have the seven plagues, another three sets of sevens. We have seven plagues, the seven vials, and the seven heads, that's after chapter 14. So before 14 we have three sevens. After 14 we have another set of three sevens. This is very interesting. Now before 14 the three sevens are generally negative. They are generally negative. The message to the church of Laodicea, uh, Laodicea is it positive or negative? It's generally negative, right? So you, and, and then and then, and then, and, then, and then we have the four horsemen, right? Is that positive or negative? The four horsemen and the seven seals—is that positive or negative? It's generally negative, right? So, the sevens are generally negative. Before chapter 14, they are kind of negative towards God's people, right? After chapter 14, we have the seven plagues, the seven vials, and the seven heads, and they are still generally negative, but they are generally negative towards God's enemies, right? So, the sevens are negative, but half towards. God's church, and half towards God's enemy. What splits them is chapter 14. Very interesting. Chapter 14 splits them. So before chapter 14, there's a lot of persecution. Have you noticed that? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet is going after God's people, and there's a lot of persecution. Before chapter 14, persecution is a theme running through those 13 chapters. All right? But then along comes chapter 14. And then after chapter 14, it's good news for God's people. So from chapter 15 onwards, it's good news for God's people. And God is going after the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So it's bad news for the dragon after chapter 14. It's bad news for the beast, and it's bad news for the false prophet. So what separates this is chapter 14. So something happens in chapter 14 that actually impacts on great controversy history. Something happens in chapter 14 that changes the, the, ch- changes the dynamics of the war. All right, And you and I are involved with this in some way, shape, or form. Whatever happens in chapter 14. So I'm going to share some principles of Bible interpretation. And you can use them in your own personal study. For example... Principle number one. I'm just calling it principle number one. There are many principles of Bible interpretation, but for these seminars, this is number one. Look for subjects that keep repeating themselves. We have a saying in English, repetition strengthens the impression. Okay? When God is repeating himself, he wants you to get something. He wants you not to miss it. And theologians call this the principle of repeat and enlargement. Repeat and enlargement. Daniel chapter 2, the image. It's a span of earth history represented by the image of the different metals. Then later in the book of Daniel, he repeats that same span of history, but he adds more detail. Daniel 7, Daniel 8, later in Daniel 11. It's called repeat and enlargement. Repeat and enlargement. For example, when, when I was little, my mother would say, Alan, would you, you, know, would you wash the dishes in the kitchen, please? Five minutes later, Alan, have you washed the dishes in the kitchen? I'm going to do it. Alan, have you washed the dishes yet? Okay, 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 okay. Repetition, we need it because we forget. Okay, so God understands this. And so this is principle number one. Look for for themes or subjects that repeat themselves. So very quickly, outline of Revelation, chapter 1 to 13, lots of persecution against God's people. 15 is the close of probation. All right, 16, we have seven last plagues introduced. 17, we have the seven heads, chapter 18, the destruction of Babylon. 19, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. 20 is Satan locked up. That's good that's bad news for God's bad news for God's enemies and good news for God's people. Then chapter 21, we got the new Jerusalem, good news for God's people. Chapter 22, the throne of God, the scene in heaven, that's good news for God's people. And right in the middle is chapter 14. So God is trying to tell us something. Chapter 14 is the pivotal point. It's the central chapter that's going to tip the balance in the war between good and evil. So God wants you to understand something. Let's ask the question. Do you think we need to understand what's happening in chapter 14 then? Absolutely. Every Adventist young person must have an an intellectual and an experiential understanding of chapter 14. So let's look and see what's in chapter 14. All right, let's ask the question what's important about chapter 14? So now we're going to look at chapter 14. We've looked at the general context of Revelation. Now we're going to look at chapter 14. So, chapter 14 is kind of split into three general sections, right? We've got the 144,000 introduced in verses 1 to 5. Then we have what we call today the three angels' message introduced in 6 to 12. And then we have what I would say is like a judgment scene. It's, it's the second coming. It's the harvesting time. And it's, it's the executive judgment as we call it. So you have the 144,000, then you have the three angels' message, then we can have, we'll, we'll just call it the second coming, right? 144,000, the three angels' message, and then the second coming. Now let's ask another question. I like to ask questions and give the answer. I like that style, right? Right, is the book of Revelation written in chronological order? That's right, correct answer. No, and we can prove that. How can we prove that? Revelation chapter 12 will tell us. If we read in verse 2 of Revelation chapter 12, I wish we had time to unpack it a bit more, but in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 2, the woman gives birth to the child, right? Who is the woman in Bible prophecy? God's people are the church. Who is the child introduced to us in Revelation chapter uh, twelve, verse two? It's Jesus. Now, what happens in Revelation chapter twelve, verse three? Very quickly, it's the war in heaven. Right? We're introduced panoramic view. The war in heaven. Dragon cast out. His tail sweeps the third parts of heaven, and, and it's the casting to the earth. Right? So, did that happen after Jesus was born? So that tells us right there and then that Revelation is not in chronological order. But there are parts of Revelation that are in chronological order. And how can we tell the difference between the two? How can we tell the difference when it's not chronological order and when it is chronological order? So how do we know? How can we know for sure? This is another principle of interpretation in the book of Revelation. When you see the first the second it's not it's not hard is it the third the fourth the fifth the sixth the seventh we know that that's chronological order the seven churches okay when we look at the the sevens when the when the book of revelations mentions them one two three the second the third the fourth that is chronological order there's a timeline a starting point and an ending point outside of that generally revelation is not in chronological order So, for example, in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, we have what we have there. In fact, let's ask this question before we go. So, why did God place the 144,000 before the three angels' message? Is that in chronological order? No, it's not. Because clearly the 144,000 is pictured on Mount Zion. You get the very clear picture that it's after redemption. It's got to be post-second coming. This, this scene is a scene of victory. It's a scene of triumph. It's a scene of post-deliverance. So why did God put, why did God put the 144,000 before the three angels' message when we know the three angels' message is fixed in time? That is chronological. We know it's chronological by the text. Turn to Revelation very quickly. You've got it, chapter 14. How do you know the three angels' message is chronological? Let's ask a question, how many angels are there in chapter 14? No. No. There's actually six angels in Revelation chapter 14. Now, why do we not have, well then, why why don't we have the six angels' message? Why don't we have the six angels' message? Because there's actually six angels in Revelation 14. Well, the the Bible actually shows us how to interpret. Look at this. Verse 6. And I saw, there's actually, for your information, there's, where are we? That might be coming later. There's an angel that pops up in verse 15. There's an angel that pops up in verse 17. There's another angel in verse 18. All right? So we have, we have another three angels. But we know that those angels are generally insignificant. I shouldn't say that. The emphasis is not upon them when it comes to the message. Look at this. Verse 6, and I saw another angel. So this is another angel. There's been angels before this. Why don't we include them? They didn't have a message. This is the first angels with a message. And then down in verse 8, and another angel, a second one. The Bible's telling us something. This is the second angel with a message. So the one before it was the beginning of the message, being the second one, indicating the first is the one before it. So there is a second angel with another message in verse 9, and then another angel, a third one. So we have one, two, and three angels' messages in the text. When the fourth angel presents himself in verse 15, it doesn't say, and a fourth one followed them. In verse 17, and a fifth one followed them. Are you with me? So the Bible wants us to number the one, the two, and the three angels only. And furthermore... We can conclude that it has to be the three angels because they are the only angels with a message. The fourth and the fifth and the sixth angel in chapter 14 did not have a message. They were doing something practical, right? But they, would, they had no message. So this is why the emphasis is on the first, second, and third angel's message. But why did he put the message after, after the 144,000? Chapters and verses were not put in the Bible until long after it was written. So, chapter thirteen originally was not separate from chapter fourteen. Fourteen from fifteen verses were not in the Bible when it was originally written. They were inserted a lot um, a long time later for our understanding. Okay, for division purposes. Right. So, when the Bible was initially written, there was no divisions of chapters or verses. So, let's ask ourselves the question: What happened? What's happening in the Bible? just before the 144,000. So we need to go to chapter 13. All right? When you find out what's happening just before the 144,000, ding! A light goes on and it makes perfect sense why God put the 144,000 before the three angels. And we're going to understand why. Well, let me just tell you now. In Revelation 13, we're introduced... We're introduced to the mark of the beast, right? And chapter thirteen. The mark of the beast is issued by the beast. The mark of the beast is issued by the beast. And the all world is going to worship the beast, and all the world is going to have the mark of the beast. But there will be one hundred and forty-four thousand who has the father's name written upon their foreheads. So, what is God saying? While all the world is bowing down and worshipping the beast and his image, there will be a group of people and God is calling them the 144,000 who will stand up and who will have the Father's name in their foreheads and they will not be following the world. They will be following Jesus Christ, their Savior. And then, look what God does. Right, while the world is worshipping the beast, there are his faithful few Adventist youth on the planet who are standing for righteousness. How are they doing it? Because of the three angels' message. You see what God is doing? He's saying, while all the world is in apostasy and worshipping the beast, there will be a faithful few Adventist youth, and they will be faithful, that they'll have my name written upon their foreheads, and have the seal of the living God. Why? Because, bing, introduces the three angels' message. Because they've had an experience with the three angels' message. And then, the second coming. So even when it's not chronological, it makes perfect sense. Are you with me? So the lamb-like beast introduces the mark of the beast and. It's, and, so, and so we know the, the, the mark of the beast is connected to the lamb-like beast. Have I said that? Yes, I think I have. Right, just after we have at 145th, I've said that, and they're standing on Mount Zion. I've said that. Right. Let's look at their characteristics for just a few moments, right? One characteristic is they have the father's name written in their foreheads. Here's the principle number three. Watch for contrasts. In chapter 13, we have the mark of the beast. All right. And those in apostasy in chapter 14, we have the 144,000 with the seal of the living God. God is contrasting. God is contrasting there, the saved from the lost. He wants to communicate. So, another principle of interpretation is watch for contrasts in scripture. Watch for the contrast. And we do this today when we communicate. We're always contrasting something like we're contrasting Barcelona versus Chelsea. You no, know, we contrast Bayern Munich and Manchester United. You know, well, you, you know, that's how you play, but this is how I play. You know, you might do that, but I do this. God is just using the same method. He's just, just giving the contrast. This is them, and these are mine. They're the devils. They belong to me. That's what he's doing. They have the Father's name in their forehead. And just incidentally, the lamb-like beast is going to use two methods to enforce the mark of the beast in chapter 13. He's going to use the buying and the selling issue, and he's going to use the death decree issue. That's how he's going to bring it about. So the whole world will worship the beast. He's going to use buying and selling, and he's going to use money, and the second thing, he's going to use the death decree. So it's going to be an issue of convenience, an appetite, (laughs) and if you still don't, he's going to Scare you into worshipping the beast. He's going to give you a death decree. That's how he's going to do it. But the point is, God is saying to us, while all the world is like that, I have a people who are like this. It's positive. How do we avoid receiving the mark of the beast? By having the seal of the living God. That will enable us to stand during the time of persecution, the time of crisis. And because they have the seal of the living God, look at these characteristics. In chapter 14, they sing a new song. They are virgins. They follow the Lamb. They are the first fruits. They have no guile. They are without fault because they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. So you get the picture that these 144,000 are like spiritual superheroes. They are the spiritual supermen and women of that generation standing like the three Hebrew boys before the furnace on the plain of Judah. Jura. Alright? So God is, God is telling us clearly that there will be a contrast between my people and the world. How did they get like that? They had an experience with the three angels' message. The message of the three angels prepared them to be among the 144,000. And so this is what I say to Adventist youth. Do you know your three angels' message? No, it's not just that. It's that. Okay, you can dance a jig. Okay, you can do some mime and drama. Okay, you know the lyrics to all the gospel songs. Okay, but can you, from the Bible, explain to me the three angels' message? I'm sorry, you'll receive the mark of the beast. You might know all the lyrics to all the gospel songs. You're going to receive the mark of the beast. I don't care how, 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 how cool you look. I don't care. You're going to receive the mark of the beast. Because the Bible is telling me only those who have an experience with the three angels will stand in the 144,000. Clearly from Scripture. So we need Adventist youth who are thinking, and I praise God for GYC that is going deep into God's Word. I praise God for GYC Europe. We have a youth convention who is not just going to dance a jig and yeah, let's have some good time. We're going deep into God's Word. And it's not salvation by knowledge. Because when we, when we open the Bible, we are encountering the mind of God. And I would rather have a generation of young people that will encounter the mind of God than encounter the mind and the arts and the drama. Are you with me? You follow me? There's a place and a time for that. There's a place and a time for that. But when we come to church, <laughs> when we come to church, it's not the time for the circus and the fairground. You hear me? Do you hear me? Okay. So they have to have an experience with, 140, uh, with the three angels' messages. Now, let's look at the three angels' messages. I'm going to stop at about 22 for a short break. And I know I'm not going to have enough time to do the whole presentation. So please forgive me. But you can take, the, you can take my PowerPoints, right? I'll let you t- If you've got a memory stick, you can take the PowerPoints. Is that Okay. Right, right, <clears throat> let's look at this. First angel's message, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, to every kindred, to every tongue, and to every people. What does the angel have in verse 6? The angel has the everlasting gospel. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is introduced to us and is introduced with a specific term. It's saying everlasting Gospel. Has the gospel been everlasting? The answer is yes. It's been everlasting. Before the fall there was the gospel. After redemption there will be the gospel. It is truly everlasting. I have some Bible text to, to, to help 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 you see that. Adam, we know that Adam was given the first promise, wasn't it? The first promise of redemption in the gospel was given to Adam. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And he shall bruise thy head, and it shall bruise thy head, and he shall bruise his heel. That's the King James Version. I shouldn't have used that version, actually. Well, I shouldn't say that either. But there are clearer translations. Basically, it's saying that you're going to irritate Jesus, but Jesus is going to crush you. In the original language, it literally means he's going to crush your head with his heel in the dirt. You're going to tickle Jesus' ankle and be a little bit of an irritation to him, but Jesus is going to... (laughs) in the dirt. That's the first promise given to man. That's the gospel. But the gospel was before that. When we we read Revelation 13, verse 8, Revelation 13, verse 8, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, when the world was made, the gospel was a reality in the mind of God. Before there was a Lucifer, before there was a Satan, before there was the fall, the gospel was a reality in the mind of God. We have First Peter chapter 1, verse 20. We don't have time to look at this now, but please... Study them for yourself and write them down. Jeremiah 31 verse 3, it says, With an everlasting love, an everlasting love, I have drawn you to myself. So the gospel has been from everlasting because it's an expression of God's love. And the time that he drew us to himself was on the cross. The cross draws us. If I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That is the time when Jesus stepped into the sin problem and the cross of Calvary is the gospel in action. But that gospel is expressed through the love of God. And that love is from everlasting to everlasting. So he introduces us to the three angels' message with the everlasting gospel, the everlasting love of God. Powerful message of God's love in the first angel. Oops, what's happened there? this technology thing gets on my nerves. Yeah, the everlasting gospel. All right, done that one. You've done that one. All right. Let's ask the question, how did John experience the angel? How did John experience the angel? And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. How did he, how did he experience the angel? He saw it. Of course he heard it because the angel was saying something. But he also saw it. We need to experience these angels with more than just one sense. We need to see it. We need to have an experience. It's not just about head knowledge. We need to have a living, real experience with the three angels' messages. The messages must be lived. They must be exemplified. They're Not just preached, but they are lived. Someone says, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. The gospel must be lived. And the three angels' message is the gospel. It must be lived, it must be experienced. We don't have a testimony if we don't have an experience with the gospel. How can we preach if we don't have an experience with the gospel? This is why I'm not, I'm not a fan of entertainment in church because what entertainment does, entertainment removes the experience with the gospel and replaces the experience with just a false veneer of church attendance. Are you with me? When our youth have an experience with the gospel, they will come to church even if the preacher is boring. They will come to church even if, question mark, they will remain faithful because they have an experience with God. They don't need to be entertained. They will come because they love to come, because they love Jesus. They have an experience, they have something to share, they have something to give. They will open their Bible. They will share a testimony. They will pray with people. They will witness for their faith. They will be scared, yes, but they'll overcome that, that fear and they will step out outside of their comfort zones and do something for Jesus powerful. They're not going to hide behind the arts and the drama. Are you with me? That's why, Pastor Hush, I mean, let the circus be the circus, let the fairground be the fairground, let the theater be the theater. When we come to church, it's about Jesus. Now we can still be creative, don't get me wrong. We need to be creative in church, but not entertaining in church. There's a difference between being creative and being entertaining. And you as leaders, as youth, need to know the difference. And if you don't, have mercy. So the message must be experienced, must be lived, must be our story, must be who we are. Notice where the angel is flying. Where's the angel flying? In the midst of heaven. Now, some commentators say that this is uh, signifying that the gospel will go to the entire world. You know, that's, the angels are in heaven, and the, the, the message is going around the world. And I, and I do believe that. But could it be that the angel, the, flying in the midst of heaven is telling us something? Who lives on earth? We do. Men. Mankind live on planet earth. Angels don't live on earth. Angels live in heaven. But the, their place of work is earth, the universe. All right? So in the universe, could there be a chain of command? Let me just explain what I'm trying to say. And after this thought, we may have a break. There is God the Father. He is the top of the chain of command. He is like the general. But then who did the Father send to this world to save this world? His Son. The Father sent the Son. So you could liken the Son to be the captain, the archangel. But then when Jesus left the earth, after he was resurrected and before he ascended to heaven, he promised there the disciples he will send someone. Who did Jesus send? The Holy Spirit. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that one is higher than the other. They're all God. But I'm saying they may have different responsibilities in the plan of salvation. They are equal, and they are one, and they are God, but they may have different roles in the plan of salvation. So when Jesus left to perform his next phase in the plan of salvation, he sent this world, he sent his church, the Holy Spirit. So we have the God the Father, then we have God the Son, then we have God the Holy Spirit. Could it be that the Holy Spirit is coordinating the, uh, the ministry of angels? Could it be that the Holy Spirit is coordinating the ministry of angels? Now, I don't have a Bible text, but we have a lot of allusions in the spirit of prophecy. Ellen White, a lot of times she says that angels are in, that the Holy Spirit is like commanding and coordinating the ministry of angels. It's in the spirit of prophecy. I've yet to find a Bible text, it may be there. But could it be that the Holy Spirit is organizing the angels? And who are the angels passing the message to? To us. So there is a chain of command. And where does the chain break? The chain breaks at its weakest link, right? Now, of that chain of command, who is the weakest link? And it's, it's not coincidence that in the original language, the word for angel means messenger. Angelos. Evangelion messenger, angel now who has asked us to preach the three angels message, are we going to see a literal angel flying in the midst of heaven, preaching the, preaching the three angels message, are we going to see that, no <laughs> we are the final link in the chain of command to take the message of the gospel to the world so God is God has a, an expectation of his young people in the last generation in the Seventh-day Adventist church that will literally live and experience this message and take this message to the entire known world. But we are the ones that are stopping it. Praise God for GYC. Praise God for mission-driven movements in God's church. Praise God. So that's just a little side thought. All right? Do you want to have a break or do you want to carry on? Because I've timed 45 minutes now. Want to carry on for 15 more minutes? and Then we'll have a break. Right. We have to have a break because two hours is too long. Right. So let's look at the first angel's message a little further. What is the angel asking us to do? What is the angel asking us to do? The angel is saying with a loud voice, Fear God. Give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment is come. And worship him that made the heavens, the earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. But the angel is asking us to do three things. He's asking us, firstly, to fear God. He is asking us to give glory to him, and he is asking us to worship Him. Why is the angel asking us to do those three things? Because the hour of his judgment is come. The angel has the everlasting gospel. It's always been the same gospel. There's one Lord, there's one baptism, right? But the angel has the gospel and is calling us to give glory to God, to to fear Him and to worship Him at a specific time, and that time is the hour of His judgment is come. Now I'm presuming you know when that started and that was 1844, because I don't have time to go into 1844 and... And, and, and all of that, right? So from 1844 has been the hour of his judgment. So the first angel's message first started to be preached in the spring of, A, in the spring of A.D. 1843. Is that right? 1843. First angel's message was, being to, was beginning to, uh, to be preached. They were preaching the judgment hour message. Something was going to happen in the sanctuary in heaven. All right? But that's another presentation. So then, the hour of his judgment is come. Three things we are to do because the hour of his judgment is come. Right, now this is an interesting thing. Watch for crescendos. This is another principle of Bible interpretation. Watch for crescendos in Scripture. Watch for a movement to something about to erupt like a volcano. For example, for example, the first angel in verse 6, is and they followed another angel saying saying with a loud voice the second angel in verse 8 can someone read that huh can someone read the first, uh, the first, the verse 8 and they the angel, that, and it it. right stop 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 Right. So verse 7, verse 7, not verse 6, of the first angel it says, and he said with a loud voice. Loud voice, right? Then in verse 8, and another angel, a second one, followed, saying, there's no more loud voice. But look at the third angel. Then a third, verse 9, then a third angel, a third one, followed, saying, with a what? A loud voice. In some translation it says mighty voice. And there's, Another angel in Revelation 18. This is just a little incidental thing. In, verse, in chapter 18. Verse 2. Alright. And there cried. Uh, uh, and so there I saw. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Having great authority. And the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried with a mighty voice. Saying. So there's a crescendo isn't there? You see the crescendo. Okay. The voice is getting louder and louder and louder. Also. Look at the first angel's message. This is just an interesting thing. What is the angel saying? Fear God. Right? Fear God. That's two words. And give glory to him. That's four words. And for the hour of his judgment is come. That's eight words. And worship him that made heaven, and earth, and sea, and the fountains of waters. That's 16 words. You have two, four, six, eight. There's a crescendo. Just an interesting thing that some theologian brought out. That's not my idea. All right? I read that in a book. It's just very interesting. All right? So, if God puts a crescendo in scripture and he's shouting louder and louder at you, he wants to get your attention. Just like my dad shouted at me when I was scratching up his car. All right? He told me to stop it. I was just little, right? He told me to stop it. I I was just little. Stop it! I, I was just little. Right. That was the crescendo, yeah? <laughs> Sometimes God speaks to us in Scripture through crescendo. So watch, to get, his, to get our attention, listen to Him. Right, very quickly. There is something in Scripture that we call precious truth. And there's something we call present truth. Precious truth and present truth. Precious truth is something, it's a truth that's for all time. Every Christian in every generation has embraced precious truth. An example of precious truth might be repentance. That's a precious truth, repentance. Every preacher in every generation has preached, repent. You know, Noah preached, repent and get into the ark. John the Baptist, he preached, repent, repent of your sins, Mark Finley, when he's preaching his evangelistic series, he's preaching repent, 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 as the first stage of the three of the three-step to, to salvation. Repent. So that's precious truth. But there is something in scripture called present truth. Present truth. An example of present truth, well, let's use, let's use Noah. Noah was preaching repent, which was precious truth. And then he would say, repent, get in the ark, because the rain is coming. That was not precious truth, because we're not preaching that today. We're not building an ark, and we're not getting in, we're not preaching the rain is coming. That was present truth for his time. John the Baptist, likewise, was preaching repent, which was precious truth. But when he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that's present truth for his day. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold Jesus, the one who is fulfilling, the one who is fulfilling the 70 weeks prophecy in the book of Daniel. Behold the Lamb of God, the 70 week prophecy fulfillment. Behold the 69 week prophecy. Behold, this is it, present truth. Present truth. So then, in the first angel's message... We have precious truth, and we have present truth. And it's not rocket science, and it helps us to understand this. So please explain this to your youth. It like, bing, puts the light on. Helps them to understand. Right. <clears throat> so then, we have fear God. Is that precious or present truth? Precious. precious truth. I think in every generation we've been asked to fear God, Right? What does fearing God mean? Does anyone know? Does it mean that we're afraid of Him? What does it mean? Having respect. Having respect? Yeah, I get you. I get where you're going. That's true. That is very true, but it's not the right answer. It includes that, but far more than that. Right? right? I'm, I'm going to speak about that in just a little while. So fearing God is precious truth, Right? Giving glory to God, is that precious or present truth? That's precious. Everyone has been asked to give glory to God. Give glory to God, right? Worshipping Him, is that precious or present? Precious, right? The hour of God's judgment is come. Is that precious or present? That's the present truth. That's the present truth. So that is the emphasis in the everlasting gospel that the first angel wants to draw us attention to. For the hour of his judgment is come. And you cannot have present truth without precious truth. Present truth is always laid upon the foundation of precious truth. You cannot separate Jesus from prophecy. You cannot separate the gospel from any message that we can ever ever disclose or ever discourse. We can't. Jesus must be the center of everything. When we do that, it's legalism. It's legalism when we strike fear in the minds of the youth, when we preach prophecy without Christ. So that's present truth. Now, that, let's, what does it mean to fear God? We looked at that, right? So, so the angel is saying, fear God because the hour of his judgment has come. So I'm asking you to fear God. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. So what does it mean to fear God? It means to get wisdom. When we're fearing God, it means we desire wisdom. And why do we desire wisdom? To get understanding. And what is the fruit of understanding? Keeping the commandments of God. You see that? The Ten Commandments are at the heart of the three angels' message. To fear God means to get wisdom. To get wisdom means we seek understanding. When we're seeking understanding, we're keeping the commandments of God. You see how the law cannot be separated from the gospel? It's One and the same. The law and the gospel. The law can't save. The keeping is the fruit of wisdom. The keeping is the fruit of fearing God. We don't keep to be saved. The keeping comes as a result of being saved. Are you with me? But you can't separate the commandments from the gospel. And then Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So to fear God is not only to get wisdom and understanding, keep His commandments. Fearing God is to hate evil. And so then, to fear God means to keep His commandments because you hate evil. Isn't that simple? Isn't that beautiful? Now look at the next verse. This is interesting. Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to doing evil? I think that's a rhetorical question, I think that's a rhetorical question, because on the face of it, the Bible seems to contradict itself. One text, the Bible's just said, get wisdom, understanding, to keep the commandments, right? Then this is saying, then, think, then may ye also do good that you are accustomed to doing evil, how can you do good? Keeping the commandments is doing good, right? Getting wisdom is doing good, right? Hating evil is doing good, right? Then how can you do it if you're accustomed to doing evil? It's a rhetorical question. We can't do it, but someone else can do it. In us. In us, alright? No, the Ethiopians can't change his skin, and the leopard can't change his spots, but there is someone who can. No, if you're accustomed to doing evil, no, you can't do good, but there is someone who can. It's a rhetorical question. If to fear God means to hate evil, If to fear God means to keep His commandments, then we can do good, even though we may be accustomed to doing evil. We can do good, even though we are accustomed to doing evil, because the Bible has just told us so. How can we do it? Through the presence and the power of Jesus in our life. How? Through an experience with the three angels' messages. It's the miracle of the new birth that I can't explain but I can experience. I used, to, I used to smoke 25 cigarettes a day. I was addicted to nicotine. But I had deliverance through the power of Christ. I wasn't a virgin when I married my wife. Became a spiritual virgin. But through the power of the living God in my life, you stop doing the things you once loved. And you, stop, and you start loving the things you once hated. Once hated, that's the everlasting gospel. That's the power of the cross to change ruined lives. The power of the cross has the power to heal broken homes. The first angel's message has the power to reunite wives with their husbands and husbands with their wives and reunite children with their parents. That is the power of the gospel in God's end time church. So why are we divorcing like the world when we have the power of the cross? To reconcile the, the lost world to its maker, and yet we're divorcing from our spouse because we no longer love them. Are we receiving the mark of the beast while yet attending church? Yes. perhaps think about it. The power of the cross, the power of the cross. It's the miracle of the new birth. Yes, of course you can. Glorifying God, that's precious truth. It's not present truth. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one: whether therefore you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, Mark Finley, and I have in the past, have used this text when we're preaching on the health message. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, you do all to the glory of God. But the text is saying far more than that. It's whatever you do, the movie you watch, is to the glory of God. You know, when the machine gun is firing off its rounds and the guts are splatting everywhere. When there's fornication, there is lying, there is cursing, there is cheating. When the plot is anti-God, are you glorifying God watching the movie? It's far more than just food and drink. It's everything. And God has always, in every generation, asked us to glorify Him in everything that we do. So that's precious truth. So fearing God, glorifying God, and worshiping God all support present truth, yet they are precious to us. You can't have precious truth without present truth without precious truth. What makes you a Seventh-day Adventist? Does fearing God make you a Seventh-day Adventist? Alone? No. Does worshiping God make you a Seventh-day Adventist alone? Others worship God. Does giving glory to God make you a Seventh-day Adventist? But what is unique? What is specific? What is the catalyst? The hour of God's judgment is come. You need to know the judgment hour message. You need to know the judgment hour message. The hour of God's judgment is come. Five minute break. Right. Right. So very quickly seeing that the everlasting gospel includes fearing God, giving glory to God, worshipping God, the hour of His judgment is come. We need to identify somewhere, we need to identify the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and the everlasting gospel, right? If the everlasting gospel includes fearing God, giving glory to God, worshipping God, for the hour of His judgment is come, we need to find among these four the ministry of Christ. We need to find where Jesus is. Because He is there. And I would like to present to you that Jesus is in the hour of His judgment message. Which message helps us to understand the judgment hour message? The sanctuary. And if you want to find Jesus, there's no better place to find Jesus than in the sanctuary message. Because the sanctuary message is the best way that God has chosen to explain to us the plan of redemption, the plan of salvation, but that's a whole different subject to talk about, the sanctuary message. Let me just say this. The sanctuary, it's like, sometimes it's hard to communicate to you the gospel truths. Theology can be complicated, and we've got things like justification, sanctification, mercy, and grace, uh, and all these big theological terms that can boggle your mind, right? But all God has done is, you want to understand who I am? There's a picture postcard. There's the plan of redemption in the, of the, in the sanctuary message. It's like when I'm trying to explain to you, to you how my wife looks like. It's difficult for me to explain to you in a clear picture how my wife looks like. She's got black hair, she's got brown eyes, she's got, her nose is this long. Are you with me? You know, her eyes are like that far apart. You just don't get the picture, but when I pull out a picture of her, there's my wife. Yeah. You get the picture. That's what God has done with the sanctuary. He said to the world, you want to know who I am? You want to see me? There's the sanctuary. This is what I am doing for you in the plan of redemption. You want to see Jesus? Study the sanctuary. It's all about Him. So we find Jesus in the first angel's message in the hour of His judgment. The hour of His. It's His judgment. His judgment. So the fourth The hour of His judgment completely reveals the characteristics of Jesus, completely reveals the purpose of Jesus. So then, when we worship the Creator, during the hour of judgment, it shows the world and the universe that we truly fear God and give glory to God when we worship Him during the hour of judgment. There is an emphasis in the first angel's message on creation. And worship him that made the heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. So in the judgment, in the first angel, there's an appeal to worship him who made. There's an emphasis upon creation. So the fourth commandment is in the first angel's message. You see that? The fourth commandment is in the first angel's message. Remember now thy... Yeah? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And that was creation. So there's a connection between the fourth commandment and the three angels' message. There's a connection between the ten commandments and the first angels' message, and the three angels' messages. Right. So we are called to fear God, give glory to God, and to worship Him because of the judgment hour. What is it about the judgment? There is something about the judgment that speaks of the love of God and His mercy for us. Well, in the first angels' message, we have the name of God mentioned. Worship, fear God, right? Fear God. He is mentioned by name. We have his title mentioned. Worship him who made heaven and earth. He's the creator who made. We also have a territory in the first angel's message, heaven and earth. So we have what governments call the seal of authority in the the first angel's message. We have in the fourth commandment of Exodus chapter 20, the seal of authority in the fourth commandment. Okay, So there is something about The keeping of the Sabbath that is connected to the judgment hour message, that is connected to the gospel, that is connected to the 144,000 that shall stand before Jesus comes. Do you see that connection? The Sabbath is connected to the seal of the living God. Sabbath is connected to the three angels' message. That's very important. Very important. So why is the Sabbath in the three angels' message? Why is it? Well, let's look at this. When we fear men, we will give glory to men. When we fear men, we give glory to men. And then we will worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast. So all who live on earth will have to fear someone. And we know what fear means, we've studied it, right? But when we fear someone, we are going to give glory to that which we fear. In other words, that which we follow. That's which we have given our, our allegiances to. So if we fear men, we're not going to fear God. He can't do both. God needs young people in this last generation who will fear him before fearing the, 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 the sight of men. God is looking for young people in his last generation that will stand up in his church and do what's right because it's right. Because they're putting God first in their life. Doing what is right is not always doing what is nice. Did you catch that? Doing what is right sometimes is not doing what is nice. The judgment's not a nice time. Judgment is not nice. It depends who you are. It depends which side you're on. Well, when we fear God, we give glory to God and we receive His seal and, and be saved. So the seal, I've mentioned, is connected to the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath. So there is something about the seal of God that is to do with Sabbath keeping. Which is why, and I'm just showing you from one verse in the three angels' message. I'm showing you from one verse how the Sabbath is the seal of the living God. And there's only one verse, and I could use 20 to do that. If I was preaching in an evangelistic campaign, I would have a whole raft of texts showing how the Sabbath is important for man. But this is one verse, the first angel's message. It's connected. It's the sign. It's the sign of the seal. It's the sign of the seal. All right? And this bold stand before God and men takes place during the hour of His judgment. Judgment in Greek means literally a time of crisis. The Greek word for judgment is interpreted as crisis. Or to cut or to divide. So you see what judgment is doing in the mind? The thought of the writer is trying to relate to us that the time of judgment is a time of dividing, a time of cutting, And it's a time of crisis also. The judgment is a time that will divide between good and evil. Between those who are saved and between those who are lost. Those who worship the creator and those who worship the beast. Those who choose allegiance to the Sabbath of the creator of heaven and those who choose allegiance to the day ordained by man. But that's another presentation. Those who fear God and those who fear men, the time of judgment will reveal to the universe and to God. He knows who we are anyway. It's just a practical revelation of who we are inside. That is the purpose of the judgment hour, to reveal who we are. God is going to use a crisis to identify character. God is going to to use a crisis to reveal what is in our hearts. That's the purpose of the judgment, to reveal who we are. And it's so simple. It is so simple. It is so beautiful in its simplicity. When you think about it, we do this every day in the secular world. Students at a university, you have to go through an examination process. That's the time of judgment. (laughs) You spend three years preparing for your degree. Or five years. I don't know how long. That's the, that's, that, that's, that's the time of investigation. <laughs> right? But then there is the executive that reveals. So you have to have an examination. And during that examination, you reveal to your examiners who you truly are by the answers you give. It lets them know if you've been listening, if you've been understanding. let them know who you are. We use this method every day in the secular life. God is so simple in how he wants to reveal to us who we are, to the world who we are. It's no different from what the universities are doing. Okay, that's the judgment. Alright, so very quickly then. When we fear men, we'll give glory to men, and then we'll worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast. When we fear God, we give glory to him, and we will receive his seal and we are saved. God's just simply using a practical method to show the world who we are. It's a test. It's a test to reveal our quality and our caliber to the universe, like an examination process. Just like in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, you have an image. All the world is asked to come and to bow down to the image. Representatives from the world are asked to bow down to the image on the plane of Dura, And there was a death decree. And everyone was asked to worship the image. And at that time was a time of crisis. Now was, was that decree for everyone? Was that decree to everyone? Or to only the three Hebrews? To everyone. Is the judgment for everyone? Or only for God's people? Everyone. It's For Everyone. The judgment is for everyone. Because everyone will receive either a mark or the seal. So the judgment is for everyone. God is not judging just his people. He's judging the world. In righteousness, the Bible says. Now at that time on the plain of Jura, was there a division? Yes. There was a clear division. Only three remained faithful. The rest bow down to the image. This tells me that the judgment is for everyone. It is against those who have the mark, and it is for those who have the seal of God. If you have the seal of God, you have nothing to fear in the judgment, because judgment is for you, not against you. If you have the mark of the beast, you have everything to fear, because judgment is against you. judgment is good news right amen Amen. judgment is good news the judgment our message is good news our message is to help people understand how to live during the time of judgment is to help them to know that God is not someone to be afraid of but someone to be a friend of now then so we have 1844 when Christ stepped into the most holy place Right? That's another message, I'm presuming. So from 1844 to the time of the second coming, Jesus is ministering in the most holy place. Judgment, we know, begins with the dead. I should have put the Bible verse up there. I didn't. Right? For the sake of time. Just believe me, the judgment begins with the dead. There's a Bible text. Right? But how do you judge the living? Judging the dead is easy. Their life's record is written down. The record of their life is in the books of record and it's written down. But how do you judge the living? Their life has not yet completed its course. How do you judge the living? (laughs) How do you do it? How do you judge the living? Well, it seems to me that God is simply going to use a crisis to judge the living. That crisis is culminating in the time of trouble, The crisis, the death decree, the buying or selling, that's the ultimate time of crisis. And God is going to use that crisis during the time of His judgment to judge us. In other words, to reveal who we are. God is going to use a crisis to judge the living. How is He judging the living? By putting us in an unavoidable position to reveal to him who we truly are. He knows who we are, but he's putting us in a position we cannot avoid to reveal to the universe who we truly are. That's what I believe it means. That's what I believe it truly means when the Bible says that he will judge the living. It's not a timeline when your name is going to come up in the kingdom of heaven. No, it's nothing like that. We close probation upon ourselves. We decide whose we are because we decide who we worship. So we are our own destiny makers. We are the ones, we have our future in our own hands because God is waiting, waiting for us to make our decision for or against Him. But He's going to put us in a position where we have to make a choice. We have to choose whose we are. At some point, when the crisis comes, before Jesus comes, the last generation living on earth will have to make a choice for or against Him in a public domain. And that is how God is going to judge the living. That is how we, I believe He is going to do it. In a sense, we don't judge ourselves. I, sh- I can't say that we judge ourselves. No. We choose our own destinies. We choose our own destinies. So God is waiting for us to decide what we will do with him before he decides what he will do with us. You see, that's the love of God. He will never force the will. And I don't know when that time will be when he decides, I am coming again. I don't know when that time will be when he takes off his priestly robes in the heavenly sanctuary and comes to take us to Him to, um, to heaven for a thousand years. I don't know when that time will be. But before that time, the the great controversy tells us, I forget the chapter, it's towards the end. She says an angel flies from earth to heaven. And that angel communicates in heaven that every decision has been made on planet earth for or against God. Then heaven empties and Jesus comes to take his people home. But he's waiting for every decision to be made on planet earth. I don't understand it all, but I believe it. I can't comprehend it, but God is waiting for every decision to be made on planet earth before he comes again. I don't understand it. Only he knows in his infinite wisdom. He knows our hearts. He reads our minds. But he's waiting for everyone. And we can only make a decision when we have evidence to make a decision. This is why in Matthew 24, verse 12, 14 that the gospel must go to the whole world as a witness. So the gospel must go to the whole world as a witness. Then shall the end come. Why does the world need a witness? The world needs a witness so that people can make up their minds. In a court of law, you need a witness to give evidence, information, so that the jury can make an intelligent decision. So then... (laughs) The everlasting gospel must go to the world. The three angels' messages must go to the world. We must take the message to the world so everyone in the final generation will have made up a decision, a cognitive decision for or against God. Then Jesus will come. I don't know when that time will be, but I know what I must do. I must preach the three angels' message. I must live the three angels' message. It's no time to be... You know, have fun. Fun is great. I have fun. I like to snowboard, I like to windsurf, I like to fly aeroplanes, I like to do all the fun things. But there is no time to spend your life doing that. And that's a small part of a Christian's life. We must be spending that much preaching the gospel, being missionaries for Jesus, wherever God puts us, we are a missionary. Sometimes, ooh, my battery's going to go. My battery's going to go. Someone, technical guy, can you check that out? Yep, my battery's going to go. Right. So, my time is almost gone. So then, we've looked at the judgment is for the saints. The judgment is for the saints. Right, I'm charging now. Thank you. No, I'm not charging. I'm charging now. There's a, t- there's a problem with the, with the plug. I'm charging now. No, I'm not charging now. I'm charging now. Thank you. No, I'm not charging now. What? <laughs> There's an issue down there. But I'm going to run out of battery. So judgment is for the saints with the seal of God. Judgment is against the sinners with the mark of the beast. So Jesus is waiting for us to make our decisions. And so when does the pronouncement and the judgment take place? I haven't got battery charge. Now I do. When does the pronouncement and the judgment take place? Turn to Revelation chapter 22. It's working now. Revelation 22, verse 11. Verse 11. This is the executive phase of the investigative judgment. Every judgment has two phases, at least two phases. The investigation phase, 1844, but then there's the executive phase when the judge stands up and makes his judgment. The the executive phase is verse 11 of, of Revelation. Let those who do wrong still do wrong. Let those who are filthy still be filthy. Let those who are righteous still practice righteousness. Let those who are holy still keep himself holy. In other words, let those who are just remain just. That's the pronouncement and the executive judgment. So now, we have the 144,000 who refuse to receive the mark of the beast because they have the seal of the living God. How did they become among the 144,000 and receive the seal of the living God? Through an experience in the three angels' messages. Living during the hour of God's judgment, they're learning what it means to fear God, to give give glory to God, and worshiping God. They understand the sanctuary message. They're preaching it. They're living it. They're teaching it. They're focused upon Christ. Christ is dwelling in them and living through them. They're gaining victory in their personal life over sin. And then when every decision on earth is made, God will stand up and say, let him who is just remain just, and let him who is filthy remain filthy. I don't know when that time is coming, but I believe it's soon. I believe we're living in the last generation of earth's history. And God is looking for young people in the church who are no longer satisfied to just play around, but who want to study the Word of God, who want to get together to pray, who want to get together to plan to do mission, to do missionary work, to do something for Him in Europe. It's too late to be doing all the nice, fluffy things. We need to finish the work. So the message of judgment is in the everlasting gospel. The pronouncement is made, Revelation 22, verse 11. The judgment is not the second coming. The pronouncement in the executive phase comes prior to the second coming. Did you catch it? Christians believe that the judgment is the second coming. Protestant Christians believe the judgment is the second coming. it's not it's not. We're now living in the time of God's judgment. I've explained that there are two, two phases to the judgment. It's pronounced in Revelation 22:11. Can the last generation here's a question can the last generation be saved by being forgiven alone? How long have I got? What time do I have to finish? Oh, we have some time for question and answer. Well, here's a question. Can the last generation be saved by being forgiven alone? Yes and no. It's a trick question, actually. We need to be forgiven to be saved. But do we need to be pronounced just. Revelation twenty two eleven, The final generation, the Christians living before Jesus comes, will need to have the pronouncement. The, invest, the investigation has now finished. The executive is now the pronouncement of just or unjust. Justification by faith is in the three angels' message. That's another presentation. But I'm excited. Justification by faith, righteousness by faith is the heart of the three angels' message. Ellen White said it's the three angels' message in verity. Justification by faith. So the answer in a very raw, crude sense is no. The last generation won't be saved by just being forgiven alone. They will need to be pronounced just. Though they are guilty, they will need to be pronounced righteous. Turn to Jeremiah, chapter 50, just to try and emphasize this point. Jeremiah, chapter 50. Remember I talked about, in Bible prophecy, we have a literal fulfillment and a spiritual fulfillment. Jeremiah 50 is talking about a literal fulfillment, but it has spiritual application fulfillment as well. Before Jesus, things were fulfilled literally. Before Jesus, we have literal Jerusalem, right? After Jesus, we have spiritual Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, right? Before Jesus, we have literal Israel, the kingdom of Israel. After Jesus, we have spiritual Israel, God's people living on earth. You understand that point? Now, in Bible prophecy, we have literal and spiritual fulfillment, There is a literal fulfillment in Jeremiah chapter 50, but there is also overtones. There's a spiritual fulfillment in Jeremiah chapter 50 for the end time. Let me explain. There is is a prophecy against Babylon in chapter 50 being preached by Jeremiah, and there was a literal fulfillment. Babylon was cast down. Babylon was overthrown. Okay? But look look at the overtones. Verse 4. Verse 4. In those days, and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. They will go along weeping as they go, they, and it will be and it will be the Lord their God, they will seek. They will ask for the way to Zion, turning their faces in its direction. They will come that they may join themselves to the Lord. Notice this: in an everlasting covenant that will never ever ever be forgotten did israel forget their covenant when this was literally preached by jeremiah yes they did they were always apostatizing 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 the everlasting covenant is the final generation who are what who are asking the way to zion in revelation 14 the 144,000 where are they standing Mount Zion. You see what the Bible is saying? There is a spiritual overtone to this. The final generation who will stand when Jesus comes will join themselves to an everlasting covenant with God and they will have their faces toward God asking the way to Zion. In other words, they will be among the 144,000. So let's read on. Let's read on. I'm making my point. Verse 20. Verse 20. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, in those days and at that time, declares the Lord, a search will be made for the iniquity of Israel. That's the only verse in Scripture I can find an investigation. A search will be made for the sins of Israel. God is looking for our sin, He's investigating us. A search will be made for the sins of Israel. Jeremiah 50, verse 20. 20. In those days, and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but there will be none found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. So there is forgiveness. Though God is looking for sin... But he will not find sin, because he's pardoned it. But he has to deal with the sin, right? Turn to chapter 51. Turn to chapter 51. In fact, we have the the three angels' messages in chapter 51. Look at this, verse 9. Verse 5, for neither Israel... Well, first of all, look at verse 7. Babylon has been a golden cup in, in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth... The nations have drunk of her wine. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and has been broken. What is that alluding to? Revelation, chapter 14, verse 8. Right. Look at verse 5. For neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God. The Lord of hosts, although their land is full of what? Guilt? Though their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel... Flee from the mist of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. That's the second angel's message. Flee from the mist of Babylon, each of you, and save your life, for it's the time of the Lord's vengeance. It's the time of the Lord's judgment. Come out of Babylon. Flee. Do not suffer for her guilt. Though your land is full of guilt, though you are guilty, I will spare you because I will forgive you. And in Revelation 22, verse 11, I will pronounce you just, even though you are are guilty, I will pronounce you just and righteous before me. If we study the sanctuary message, we need to understand what we need to do. We need to separate from sins. Willful known sin during the time of his judgment. The final generation will no longer be willfully committing sin, knowingly. But we still need God's pronouncement. Because, you know what I mean, we have sinful flesh. We still still sin unwittingly, just by the virtue of being human. Ellen White says, even our prayers, the prayers of the most faithful saint, still go to God through polluted channels. And our prayers and our worship and our prayers need to be bathed in the righteousness of Christ. And we still need to be pronounced just in the judgment. So I'm not preaching excuse for sin. No, we must have a turning away of sin. That's the sanctuary message. The cleansing of the sanctuary. It's The cleansing of our hearts. But there's there's a pronouncement that must be made. And the final generation will be pronounced just because God has forgiven us. And we need to be pronounced just. The two must come together in the final generation. So that's my message, and we have half an hour left. So I've introduced, just very quickly, justification by faith. I've introduced the sanctuary message, and it's all there, right in the first angel's message. And we haven't even really studied the second or the third in a, in a, in a more deeper sense. But time doesn't allow. Do you want to ask questions? Or do you want me to quickly present something else? Do you want to ask some questions? Or do you want me to present something else? I can present justification by faith. Question. Everyone is... Yeah? Yeah? And in his heart, it's good. and but Just wait it, sorry, um, Andre, can you do the same thing again? It slipped out of presenter mode. So you're saying, there's a text in the Bible that says that God will only. Hold you accountable for what you know. That's true. Yeah? The Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans, in the, in the opening chapters of Romans. Yeah? And that is true. This is why, this is why the message has to go to the world. So that everyone makes an intelligent decision based upon what they know. That's the reason for the gospel going to the world before Jesus comes. Because the Bible tells us that in Thessalonians that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. Thank you. That all should come to repentance. So the message has to go. And God is waiting for the message to go because he wants everyone to come to repentance because he does, he's not willing for, any, for everyone to, um, to perish. But you have to make a decision sometime. So Ellen White also says in the book Desire of Ages, she says that there will be a people, a group of people in heaven that have never heard the gospel. There will be a group of people in heaven that have never heard the gospel. And Jesus will take them for a walk along the banks of the river of life and he'll show them the scars and he'll preach to them the gospel for the first time and yet they're in heaven. How? They've lived up to the light that they have received. They've been faithful to the Holy Spirit's call upon their life and they've lived up to the life that they've received in their generation and they've followed They followed the ways of the Holy Spirit as the the Holy Spirit has spoken to them. She's clear on that. Yeah. God is a God of love. He's not inconsistent. But in the final generation, we all have to make a choice. And that's why God is waiting. He's not inconsistent. He's consistent with his character of love, so he's waiting for the message to go. Um. Yeah, the, the the shaking. Yeah, no, it, it is, it is, it is all connected. It it is, it's not, my, it's not related to my message, but the sifting time is connected to the preaching of the straight testimony. That includes the three angels' messages. There, I can tell you, I'm a youth director in God's Church, and I'm so. It's a privilege to be a pastor in God's church. But I can tell you that there are members in the church who get irritated at the three angels' message. They're irritated with a, with a true testimony to Laodicea. They are irritated. They are pleasure pleasure-seeking Christ Adventists. And they get irritated with the truth. And I see it regularly. So yes, there, is a, there will be a shaking. There will be a separating. And we leave that to God. It's his church. I'm not going to say you're, you're not honest and, and, and you are. and That's not for me to say. But I see the fruit. I see the fruit. But I have to be responsible and you have to be responsible to do what's right in your sphere of influence. In your time, in your place, you need to do what's right before God and follow your conscience. And the Bible says, all those who would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer Persecution. So during the sifting time, during the time of shaking, there will be heat leading up to the final crisis, the death decree. Leading up. So, yes, in God's church, it's God's church, but in His church, there are the wheat and the tares. In His church, the wheat and the tares are both in the pew and in the pulpit. They are in administration and they are in the membership. But that's as far as I go. It is God's church, and I will not criticize God's church. That was that's as far as I dare go. Right? Picture of the saints here, they to keep the commands of God and have the faith of Jesus. Yep, absolutely. And that's one. And that's one also one instance where the third inches message has been relevant right through time. Because in every generation, God has had a people that keep the commands of God and of the faith of Jesus, even during the dark ages, the time of persecution. The time of persecution. And yes, absolutely. Uh, if I correctly, 84 to 84, Yep. correctly, investigate the is the from Yep, and that will culminate with the, with the declaration in Revelation 22, verse 11, and then Jesus will come. Okay, I, I know, I know there's, 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 there's arguments both ways. For me, that's not an important question. For me, the important question is, I want to be part of it. Am I part of it? Whether it's literal or spiritual, for me, it's, it's an intellectual question. It's not, it's not a self, it's not a spiritual question for me. It's an intellectual thing that, Okay, it's interesting, you know. It's interesting, but where's that going to lead you? I, I don't want to go down that route. For me, the question is, am I part of the 144,000? And how can I be part of the 144,000? There are good arguments, and I've seen them, that it is literal. But there are other arguments that it is spiritual, and they are good. I haven't studied that for myself because I've made a decision that that's not an important question for me. Yeah. I think when we, because I see the division in the church, and I see the two camps, and when we start, when we start picking each other, I know for sure that no one's in the 144,000. <laughs> when I see, when I see, you know, when I see conservatives beating the liberals and the liberals beating the conservatives, it's like, well, this is, this is, this is like the time of Christ, you know, the Pharisees hated the Sadducees and the Sadducees hated the Pharisees. And I don't trust either of them because they both put Christ on the cross. The Sadducees and the Pharisees both put Jesus on the cross. So I don't, get, I don't want to get drawn into these debates when it's a, 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 it's a non-essential. It's a non-essential. It's not important. But, I, but yeah, like I said, when I see them picking each other, I think you both need to re-examine your life. You might not even be in the 144,000. Yeah, who's... who's, Yeah, the 144,000 is a description, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, an expression, it's a description of those who have gone through the time of final crisis and have been delivered, the final generation. They are the 144,000. The great multitude, that's when we all get to heaven, the great multitude, a numerous, a numerous number, that's all those who have ever lived and been resurrected when Jesus comes. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm not saying 145,000 is a literal number. You know, but it's Bible symbolic language. It's Bible language describing the those who have come through the time of crisis. Yes, it is those only those. Yeah, because they are the only ones that have received the seal of the living God. They are the only ones who have you know have the character have the character of the Father in their forehead. They are virgins. Yeah. And the different characteristics that and that we've looked at, they, yeah. And if you do if you do an interesting study of the Book of Revelation, the 144,000, in Hebrew, the names have a meaning. And if you go through the list of names in the Book of Revelation and you study the meaning in the Old Testament, you will find that it's actually it's a song of experience. Put the meanings together as in the Old Testament. And as they're in order in the book of Revelation, and it's a song of experience that they have gone through, that only those will have gone through. So only those can sing that song. It's an interesting study. The names of the sons of Israel, the, t- the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. So you can look at that. All right, we have 20 minutes. We can finish early, and you're free. You can go if you want. We'll close with a word of prayer you can go, I don't have time to do a presentation on justification by faith, but it's very interesting, but now I'll make a mess of it In, in 20 minutes, I'll make a mess of it so I think I might leave it Yep. Yeah. Total, total, total allegiance, total devotion. Did you get the question? Actually, <clears throat> again, it's describing the characteristics of those who have gone through. At the end of the third angel, it's describing, the, it's describing those who have gone through the time of trouble and been delivered, the 144,000, those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That's, that's describing their quality. It's a total commitment, a total allegiance. It's a total surrender to Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus, and Jesus, and God isn't asked us to do anything that He didn't ask His Son to do. In the book, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and other places, Jesus saying, I do nothing of myself. But everything that, that, that the Father has taught me, I I I do. I do not speak my own words. Everything I say, I say for the Father and on behalf of the Father. I do nothing of myself. I do everything to glorify my Father. So those going through the final generation will have an experience with Christ, and it's Christ in them. They will have an earthly experience that Christ lived, where they are totally committed to the will of the Father, that, that, as the Bible says, they will know the will of God. Romans chapter 12, our bodies must be offered as a living sacrifice, totally acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. To the point that you can even know the mind of God because it's God in you. Total, total commitment and allegiance. Quality. Virgin. Powerful. And it can happen. And it will happen only with youth who are serious and want it to happen. Young people who are serious to do what's right and to follow Jesus all the way. Honestly, we need conversion. We need healing from ourselves. We need to know what's right to make changes and adjustments in our lives. Absolutely. You know what? And I'm not a theologian. I'm a youth director. I'm not a theologian. And yet I know enough to do a simple presentation. I don't have time to study it the way I should. I need to make more time. I suffer the same problem that you might do. You need to make time to spend time with Jesus. I'm just like you, you're just like me. We have the same struggles, but we need to make intelligent choices in our life to allow Jesus to have his way with us. We need to spend time to study the word, spend time in prayer, time with the saints, like attracts like, and like encourages like. And we need that time together, which is why we're here. So go back, go back to make a difference in your own life first, and then with those around you. Let's, let's just finish early because I'll make a mess of justification in 15 minutes. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to speak. And I may not have been clear enough, but I pray that the Holy Spirit will make up the difference in the mind of my hearers. I pray that you will convict them of sin righteousness and judgment and convict them, convict them of sin in their life, righteousness of Jesus Christ, judgment time in which they live, and what they must do. Simple choice. It's a choice each and every moment of each and every day. I pray that you will be with the leaders here in Europe, the youth directors, the youth in the local church, that we will see the times in which we live, see the opportunities that you are given to us to preach and to share, and that we will take those opportunities and be the young people in this generation that you want them to be pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.